0: Hear the word of God from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done, in creation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well today. Hope you had a great week. I just want to start off by sharing how good it is to be together with you again. This morning I was blessed by somebody in the congregation that had a note from my wife. Uh, My wife shared on on our Waypoint blog um, just a little bit about ways to bless families with um, special needs children. And a lady in our church came and said, I wrote something for your wife. And she read it to me, I recorded it, I was like, okay, I gotta give this to Gina, because Gina's not here this morning. And so I recorded it, and what a blessing. I don't know if you guys realize this. Um, There's a temptation in our culture, in our society, that you can do church at home. You know, there's some great sermons, preachers who are a million times better than I'll ever be, worship bands that are maybe a little bit better than our band, maybe not. (laughs) I can put myself down, I feel bad. (laughs) But there's nothing like the community of God that God called you to be a part of. There's nothing like being a part of a fellowship, of a body that you're called, ordained to be a part of. God has called us to do this thing called Christian maturity, Christian growth, Christian mission together. And when I can come into a place like this and have... A a person, a, a sister, a woman of God come to me and share with me what God has placed on her heart and it moves me and it moves my heart and it encourages me. That's what the body is for. Do you hear that? Guys, we need each other. We're called to do this thing together, to pray for each other, to love each other, to encourage each other, to sharpen each other, to hold each other accountable. So I want to encourage you. I'm glad that you're here. And if you're new here, guys, if this is not the place for you, make sure you find a place for you. We want you to be plugged in, because Christian maturity, Christian growth is a group exercise. It's a group project. I just want to share that again. I just was so moved this morning. I had tears in my eyes just thinking, God, that we got to do this thing together. Today, we're Diving into one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I love it so much. It's Genesis means origin or beginning. And this book, the book of Genesis, lays the groundwork not only for the book of Exodus, which obviously comes next, but also for the rest of Scripture. Matthew Henry, a long time ago, said Genesis is a name borrowed from the Greek. It signifies the original or generations. It's the perfect title for this book because it's a history of originals. The creation of the world, the entrance of sin and death into the world, the invention of the arts, the rise of nations, and especially the planting of the church and the state in its early days. It is also, Henry said, <clears throat> a history of generations, the genealogies of Adam and Noah and Abraham <clears throat> and the other great patriarchs. <clears throat> the book, of course, begins with God's creation of the world. But its early chapters record three low points in primeval history, the fall, the flood, and the sin at Babel. And in each of these instances, God responds in both judgment and grace. So the very first chapter of Genesis, as he is acknowledged to be creator of God and sovereign Lord, God's also shown to be God of justice and mercy simultaneously. This book, Genesis, can just for your kind of orderly way of looking at it, can be divided into two main parts. The first 11 chapters is what my professors and scholars call primeval history. Then from chapters 12 through 50, we have the history of the patriarchs. So first one through 11 is what we call primeval history, and then 12 through 50 is what we call the history of the patriarchs. The stories of what happened in in the world before the time of the patriarchs, and then the focus on the four particular patriarchs. And what I love, interestingly enough, each half of a book focuses on either four events or people. The first half of the primeval history uh, concerns four great events. Creation, Genesis one and two. The fall and its aftermath, Genesis three and five. The flood from Genesis six to nine. And then the events found in the Tower of Babel from Genesis 10 through 11. So four major events of primeval history. But the second half of the book covers all patriarchal history, focused on four people. Four great patriarchs. Focus on Abraham. Then it focuses on um, Isaac then it focuses on um, Jacob, and finally it focuses on Joseph. So four major events in the primeval of history and four major patriarchs that it focuses on. And I love it because this sets the stage, sets, sets in motion and themes that are used throughout the Bible, but actually some of these themes are actually only, not, not even used in the rest of the Old Testament, but saved to usage in the New Testament. Specifically, like I mentioned last week, I told you about the prof- uh, pastor that I had that I wanted to study the book of Revelation under, And he said, you'll never understand the book of Revelation if you don't understand the book of Genesis. That we need to know the beginning. Beginnings tell us a lot. They convey so much. Even the very first line of a beginning of a book or a movie can convey a tone or a mood or where we're going. So I'm going to play a little quiz, a little game with you guys, okay? I'm going to say a beginning from a movie or a book. And you guys have to shout out the name of the book or the movie. Fair? Sound good? This is your chance to show off, guys. All right, call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, good job. For those of you are like, what? Come on, guys. <laughs> All right, this one's for a movie, it's gonna be hard, we'll see this one. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. To me, being a gangster was better than being the president. Who said that? I heard it over here. Good fellas, good job. Well done. All right, it was the best of time, it was the worst of times. Tale of two cities, good job. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, look at that. Everybody's like, yes, I know that one. <laughs> All right, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive. That was fast. <laughs> wow. See, in the Bible, we have this amazing beginning. Many scholars like to call Genesis chapter one to two, chapter, verse three, the prologue of the book. A prologue is a separate introductory section of a literary work. It helps the reader understand the plot event in a larger context. So we have this amazing prologue that was written for a purpose. Our job today is to figure out what was that purpose for the original readers, and what does that mean for us today? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first statement, the main point of the prologue is that I think is established right away the first thing moses wants his people to understand the first main point of the bible brings us face to face with the ultimate reality god no surprise that god himself is a subject of the very first sentence of the bible and if we miss the significance of that we've missed everything god is the ultimate reality the one true god it is that reality which drives all of our understanding. And that's one, one of the great lessons that we can learn in this passage. God created out of nothing. He is the source of all. He is the source of all reality. The problem is, as we enter into this book of Genesis, most of us in our modern Western world, and a way of thinking, is we don't actually read the prologue of Genesis correctly. We miss what this prologue is because we think it's the same as the rest of Genesis. And we think of Genesis is supposed to be like a history book or a textbook. So we come to the book of Genesis with the typical questions that we have about um, evolution or 24-hour literal, 24-hour days or how old is the earth? Am I right? How many of you guys are like, ooh, we're talking about Genesis? Maybe I'll learn those lessons. Anybody? Raise your hand, be honest. Yeah, I got you. You guys are all thinking this stuff. You're trying to be like, ooh, what's Lawrence going to say here? An awful lot of the Bible is what we call historical prose narrative. The book of Luke, for example, the author says, I've talked to all the eyewitnesses. I made sure I spoke with these disciples, spoke with these people, I saw them. and because I gathered the information of what they said, so I'm gonna give my account of everything that happened in the life of Jesus. That's historical prose narrative, and you read it in such a manner. But when you open the book of Psalms, what do you have? You have poetry. You have songs. And the poetry makes itself known by its strophic, which is uh, this is this is where my English Background comes in. Strophic nature, which means repetition or refrains, also buys parallelism. The Hebrew poetry was marked by parallelism and pattern, repetition, and parallelism. So it's very easy generally to read through the Bible and see where it is poetic, book of Psalms, where you don't interpret things literally, or where it is historical prose narrative, in which case you read it literally. There are a few places, like the book of Ecclesiastes, where you're like, huh? Uh, not sure how to read that, but okay. But most of the time, signals are there. This is one of those times in the Genesis 1 prologue, you're like, how should I read this? When you get into Genesis 2, it's fairly obvious this is historical prose narrative. It reads just like an account of exactly what's happening. But when Genesis 1, you get strophic nature, you get, you get poetry, you get parallelism, you get repetition. It's very patterned. Over and over again, it says, he said and it was. He saw it was good. It was evening and it was morning the first day. These refrains, these patterns. It's not the way historic narrative is read. Genesis chapter 2 is, but not Genesis chapter 1. And so what Tim Keller and other scholars would say here is that they believe chapter 1, this prologue, is not a history of exactly what God did, but a song or a poem about what God did. The history starts in Genesis 2, so for example, Exodus 14 is the historical narrative of crossing the Red Sea, but Exodus 15 is Miriam's song about it. And so these scholars would say that prologue, verse, chapter 1 is a prologue that's not a history of what God did, but it's a poem of what God did. Possibly this is what we have here, this is what scholars believe. A prologue or a song or a poem that's going into the narrative, that's one view. There's other views. The other view says that even though Genesis 1 is strophic in nature, it's not necessarily meant to be poetry. Um, It's meant to be taken literal, therefore everything in it is literal. Regardless of how we interpret Genesis chapter 1, or how we view the days of creation, that's not what was meant, and that's not what was importantly conveyed by the author. The important theme to note is that we agree that it shows the orderliness of creation out of chaos by an all-powerful creator. I mean, one can hold to the view that it's a literal 24-hour day, or one can hold to the view that it's a poem and isn't making a single statement about how many hours are in a day. That's not what's important out of this text. What is important out of this text is that we clearly and plainly see that God is creator. He's not been made. He is creator in and of himself, and he makes order out of chaos. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me so far? Yes? I like nodding heads. Nodding heads work for me because you guys are not the type that's gonna be like, mm, Amen, oh God. That's not most of you guys. So nodding heads will work for me, okay? If you were the other way, I'd go with that too. Either way, I'm good. That's right. Go for it. Matthew Henry says this: the first of the the first verse of the Bible gives us a sure and better and better, a more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosophers. The lively faith of a humble Christian understands this matter better than the elevated fancy of the greatest minds. I love this idea because this is what, this is what philosophers are searching for, right? This is a question of existence. Right? How are we here? How are we made? You can argue ontological, teleological, you can argue existential, you can argue all these arguments, but the question comes down to the humble Christian mind that just accepts by faith that we're looking here in the beginning of Genesis is that we are here because God created. Out of chaos, he created. And we cling to that. Now in this Prologue of Genesis, I want us to see three major points. One, God shows His order and design. Two, God shows His goodness in creation. And three, God shows His delight in creation. Now we don't have time to go through each verse of Genesis one, the prologue, verse by verse. And if you have any specific questions, ask any of the women who took part of the Jed Wilkins study, and they'll answer those questions for you. Okay, so go to them, they know it better because that Jed Wilkins study was incredible and they they just know it, okay? So ask any of them who went to that study. But what I want you to see and what I believe the Israelites would have seen right away is this beautiful orderliness, its design that was intentional in creation. The process of creation followed a pattern, had an announcement, a commandment, separation, report, naming, evaluation, and chronological framework. What I mean by that is announcement, God says... Each event occurs according to God's expressed will and through the agency of his word. This speech signifies that God is intimately bonded to his creation. So there's an announcement. Then there was a commandment. Let there be. Let there be. Then there was a separation. Dividing day and night. Waters and land. Boundaries are separated. Boundaries here, what are these separation doing? It's once again making order out of chaos. Show that boundaries are good. And there's a report. And so God made it and so god made it so and so it ha- or it was so then there was a naming and he called it this is an indication of dominion and reveals god as supreme ruler this is an indication of dominion adam was given this dominion wasn't he adam was told a name so this idea of naming gives dominion over then there was a valuation god saw that it was good everything satisfies god's purposes that there was a chronological framework ending of each day. God does not create in time, but with time. The careful use of numbers throughout this account attests to God's logical and timely shaping of creation. He chose to use days. He chose to use time. This process of creation coupled with the way the days fit and complete each other shows God's orderliness. Days one through three match up perfectly with days four through six. What was made in days one through three was completely and expanded in days four through six. Action escalates with the days. The first three three days there is simple movement from light to dark, from firmament and seas to vegetation. Within the second three days there is an eruption, sun and moon and sky, birds and fish and land animals. Bruce Walkie says the entire account is unified by a basic week time structure. And I say weak as in W-E-E-K, weak time structure. Structure affirms the consonants and symmetry, the harmony and balance in God's world. This beautiful account of the beginning is comforting the people of Israel by letting them know that God has a purpose. God is designing. God is in control, and chaos doesn't reign. See, for the Israelite people, chaos was symbolic of disorder, and disorder was the enemy, what they didn't want. That was why they were afraid of the sea, because the sea symbolized chaos to them. And so the Israelite people needed to know that they had a God who was orderly, a God who made boundaries, a God of order and creation. And that's what this prologue, this poem, this song, or this account is stating, that our God is orderly. Our God has boundaries. Our God makes order out of chaos. He has purpose in his design. So you're not in chaos right now, Israelite people, as you're wandering the wilderness. As you're about to enter into the promised land, it is not chaos that you're going with, but you're going in with a God of order. And for you, my people today, don't you need to know this? Does it bring you comfort to you? Because it does me. Because sometimes it feels like the world is bouncing around, like it's a random ball just bouncing around, one of those super balls that bounces everywhere, and you threw it really hard, and it's just gone. You're like, this is no order. This this world is in flux. It's in chaos. It has no order. And instead, I like to state that, no, no, God is not just a bouncing ball. God is in control. There's a purpose to this world. There's an order to this world, and God established it, and he will fulfill it. God is a God of order, and there is meaning and in my life, and as I see so many chaotic events seemingly happen, I like to believe that God works all things for the good of those who love him. Do you see that? Does it bring you comfort? Those of us who deal with the fear of the unknown, do you have comfort because God is known and he orders it? Two, there is goodness in creation. Over and over again, God sees everything and says it is good. Archbishop William Temple says this, Eastern religions say this world is unreal. The physical world is unreal. It's an illusion and someday it'll fade away. Western religions, the Greeks and the Romans said this world is bad. The body is bad, the material world is bad. The spirit is noble and virtuous and good. Even Islam says paradise is a spiritual world. We leave the physical world. Only the Bible, though, guys, has such a high view and a positive view of the goodness of material creation that we're told God is going to resurrect our bodies and give us a new heavens and a new earth. You really have God with his hands in the dust and in the dirt when he's creating man. And what's amazing for the Greeks it's amazing for Eastern religion, Walter Brueggemann says this, it was intellectually, intellectually revolutionary for the book of Genesis to come and say the material world is that good. And what does that mean for us? What does it mean when it says we look at the world and it is called good? This is contradictory to what most people thought at this time, that this is good. Number one, it means, and if you're making outlines, it's actually an, an A, not number one, but I'm just going to say this. One point, of what does that mean for us? Is it means that it's good to enjoy creation. Do you know that feeling that you get when you look out over the Grand Canyon or when you see a perfect sunset over the beach? Or that when you're in the mountains and you see the tops of the clouds, that kind of, Ah, look at that, right? You know that feeling you get? What a, you look around, and you say, wow, what a wonderful world. God made the world good, and he made it for his glory. He wants us to see and enjoy the world he made. Do you hear that? He calls it good. We need to see the handiwork of an amazing God when we see and enjoy the world he made. But imbalance to this goodness in creation is that it is finite. In the creation account it's made clear that the main object, the main point of the passage, is not creation itself, but the one creating. He announces, he commits actions, he pronounces. This is to ultimately show that creation, while good, is still finite, and the main point is God himself. Creation is finite but good. And I love this stats and the reality that it leads for us because you see one way to look at our relationship with the world, with the material world, with the nature around us, with the world around us is many ancient religions was to go with the aesthetic. They said this world isn't real and if you're going to get spiritual you gotta deny it. Don't enjoy it. Pleasures isn't good for you, it's corrupting. Don't enjoy the things of this world. Deny yourself. That's one way to look at it. The material world is bad, nature is bad, everything is bad. So let's deny ourselves and live in this world. Other religions, other thoughts, and even secularism today is kind of this materialistic idea. That this is all we have. This world is all we have. Therefore, people essentially need to worship physical pleasure, or wealth, or sex, or money, or power. This is all you have. You live for it. You live for money. You live for the pleasure. You live for what you have now. It's almost a, uh, this one way or the other, extreme versions. It could, it's how we look at it. It's how we view the world. Is it, is it, is it all good or is it all bad? But what we as Christians have is this incredible balance that we say it is good, but it is finite. It is good, but it points us to something better. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? The goodness of creation at the same time, the finiteness is is what this balance is. It means that you can enjoy it and you can walk away from it. If it or something is taken away from you, it doesn't destroy you. You can go for the good parts of the material world. You go for pleasure, you go for food, ordinary comforts, but you have to do without them and it's all right. You're not crestfallen, you're not destroyed if you're denied the pleasures of the world because it just points you to something better. So in other words, the idea of making money. Go and make money, do great things with it. You can do amazing things in the world with it, but if you don't have it, you should clearly be able to say, oh, but I have God and if you do have it you should clearly be able to say oh but it just points me it just allows me to do more with what God's given me but because I have God it is good enjoy the good things this world has to offer it glorifies God when you, do, when you do it well but if you can can you say oh well I have all I need in God if you can if you can do this it changes your whole view of creation guys can I just try to wrap it around like this for you Really quickly, He said, if you truly understand that the world is good, but it's also finite and it's meant to point you to God, then it truly is the way for you to enjoy the world while giving glory to God. You're not addicted. You're not attached. You're not dependent upon what the world has to offer. So then you can actually enjoy it. I um had some friends of mine just got back from Disney, and Disney is one of those experiences where it's like, like it's one of those like magical, like crazy. Like, everything is awesome, and the people are the nicest people, and, uh, like, literally, like, am I right? Who's been to Disney before? Anybody been to Disney, right? Everybody's so nice there. And there's, I kid you not, there's more people cleaning all the time at Disney than, like, anywhere else. Like, there's no, they, they don't let you see dirt or trash, ever. And it's an incredible experience, and your kids go to Disney, and your di- kids are on a high, but the reality is what happens when you go to Disney, and then you, what happens afterwards? You have to come back home. And you're like, oh. There's no fun rides everywhere. Oh, um, nobody's cleaning up all the time after me. Oh, wait, my kids are not always happy all the time. Th- you know, like it's there's a reality. It's oftentimes, here's what happens in life: we live for the highs, right? Everybody's working for the weekend, right? You live for the highs. And the problem is, is that you have one option. You have one option is you live for the highs, and you're like, okay, I just need the next great thing that I can enjoy in creation. I need that next vacation. So I'm just going to live, live, live for that next vacation. Or I live for, live for that next Disney trip. Or I live for the next beach trip. And you live for those high moments, right? And that's what you crave. That's what you need. You're dependent upon it. The other option is like, well, you know what? It's all bad. It corrupts me completely. I'm just going to deny all of it. I don't want those highs because the highs make my lows seem so terrible. I don't want to live in those lows, right? I hated it when I came back from Disney, and it's just, it's just rough. So I don't even want that roughness. So I'm just going to deny all of it. Those are pervading philosophies that exist in the world, but as a Christian, because we're not dependent upon the highs, because without the highs, who do we still have? We have God, and we can actually enjoy the highs, live in the no's, because we always have God. We have the right perspective on creation. We get to be people who are unique and different. Do you get that? You're a Christian. How attractive is living like that? People who love creation, love to laugh, eat, play, steward well, but isn't dependent upon it. That's who you are as a follower of Jesus. You enjoy creation but know that it is finite and know that it paints a picture of what is to come. Simone Weil, the French philosopher and activist, wrote an interesting essay about the beauty of the world. She says, the love we feel for the splendor of the heavens, the plains, the sea, and the mountains, for the breath of the winds or the warmth of the sun, this love of which every human being has at least an inkling. In other words, the beauty of the world is an incomplete, painful love because the beauty of the world makes us yearn for some universal beauty behind it that does not seem to respond to us. Is much, much like for me, the beauty of the world is much like a beauty of a love song that is loving and yearning for the return of a great love. Uh, you know those great love songs that's like, I love you and I miss you. And I can't wait for you to come back. We see the beauty of creation singing this longing song of completion. Nature is reflecting the glory of God. It's reflecting the goodness of God. It's speaking to us of the greatness of God because it's so gorgeous. We want to enter in, but we can't because there's something wrong with our relationship with God. For those of us who know Christ knows that this longing will one day be fulfilled and Jesus will consummate his kingdom and all that went wrong will be made right. Creation paints a picture of what is to come. Creation is like this beautiful longing love song and what I pray that it does for your heart today is that it paints this picture of this beautiful love that will one day be consummated, that will one day be brought to fruition, that will one day come together. Now for those of you who don't know Jesus, my prayer for you today is as you look at the beauty and wonder of creation and you hear that longing love song in it, this, this, almost like it's so close. I can see the beauty of creation. It's almost so right. There's something missing. Can I tell you what's missing is that there is sin in this world and Jesus Christ has come as redemptive answer to that problem. And you can know him. And so instead of this longing love song that's almost so close that you wish you had, it now becomes a a confident yearning, a confident waiting for that he will come back. See, there's a difference between, oh, I wish I could have that love song, I wish I could have that love, to a difference of, I know I have that love. And that could be yours in Jesus. Third main point God delights in his creation. God looked at His creation each and every day and made a pronouncement. He called it good. At the end of creation, He did something else that is so incredible. He rested. Now, what does that mean? Did He take a nap? You know, God's like, "Oh, that was, that was t- tough work. I'm going to take a nap real quick. Um, I need to rest a little bit." No, God wasn't tired from creating. He chose to rest. By that I mean, I believe he chose to stop creating and enjoy his creation. Now, this is an imperfect analogy, but I'm just gonna give it to you anyway. It's like a child who's working on a big Lego project. You know, a child making a Millennium Falcon. And when that child was finished pulling the Millennium Falcon together, he stopped and just enjoyed it. He's like, oh, look how this... It's pretty awesome. God has pleasure in his creation. Psalm 104.31 states, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. This isn't a hopefully God rejoices in his works, but assuming that he will with rock, solid confidence, God rejoices in his creation. He delights in it. He delights in you. I remember as a kid asking my mom why I was in the world. Like, mom, why am I here? Why did you have me? Why, why are we a family? And very clearly, I remember her answering, very cheesy answer and I loved it. She said I was in the world because her and my dad wanted someone to love so much that they had me. So cheesy, but I'm gonna sit it to my kids. <laughs> Here's this awesome reality, the triune God. The triune God was full and complete before all of creation. God was not lacking in any way. But for His glory and His enjoyment, He created. Do you get that? You are created on purpose, out of love, and for glory. You are enjoyed. I don't know your history. I don't know your circumstances. Not all of you at least. Maybe you were never wanted. Maybe you were, but maybe you feel that way now. Maybe you feel that this world is aimless. Maybe you feel like you have no role in it, no purpose in it. The prologue is shouting out something totally different to you. Creation is shouting out something totally different. The prologue shouts out there is an order and purpose in creation. It is good. God enjoys it. That is for you. You are not here. You are not on accident. You're not, you, have, you do have purpose. God enjoys his creation. He enjoys you. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Do you believe that? Through Jesus, you can have the confidence to live in the creation the way it was meant to be lived. The Israelite people were wandering in the, the desert. Do we have a home? Do we have purpose? And here comes this prologue to this book that shouts out, yes, you do. And we're wandering in this desert now, this world we live in as we're called to advance the kingdom, as we're called to see the kingdom advance. And the answer to us now today is we have purpose. God enjoys us his creation let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for God your good creation God the way you made it good and the way you enjoyed the orderliness that you made it God you show us your purpose your design your power God may we fight against anxiety by trusting that God you are sovereign and in control May we fight against our insecurities by knowing that, God, you made us intentionally, that you enjoy us. God, may we believe what you've written down in this prologue about us, about who we are. God, we thank you for being God our creator, God our redeemer, God our savior. God, may we believe, may we choose to believe that this is who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.